Christians are not owners. We are stewards. Our time is not our own. The time the Lord gives us while we live on earth is a gift. The scriptures are abundantly clear. We are called to be wise in the way we live. The Apostle Paul says to Christians in Ephesus, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. This is a subject which little is spoken. No wonder Jesus teaches us to pray every day. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James teaches us to use our time according to God's will, not our own. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Well, good morning, Cross Church. It really is a joy and a privilege to be with you and share in your community this morning. I am uh, I'm just honored to be here. I've had the opportunity to, as Chris has mentioned, know him for some time and getting the opportunity recently to know Pastor Allen better. And uh, I trust you know how blessed you are in this community. I don't have time. Have you ever heard that phrase? Ever said it? I know I have. Probably more times than I can count. Hey, we should get together. I don't have time. Go the speed limit. I don't have time. Mom and Dad would really like to see you. I, I, I don't have time. Chew between mouthfuls. I don't have time. Dad, watch me win this video game. I don't have time. Let's go on a date. I don't have time. Go to the bathroom. I don't have time. Spend time with the Lord. I don't have time. From the ridiculous to the significant. From the, the deeply regretted to the barely remembered. We hear and speak this phrase constantly. Especially in our frenzied world. We wear busyness as a badge of honor. And yet the result for many is regret upon regret. We furiously attempt to manage our time to squeeze out every last ounce. And yet the result for many is burnout. Sometimes we offer our time to even really good things. And even then, it's never enough. We treat time like this endless commodity and then suddenly we're at the end of it. And we're asking questions like, what was it for? I don't have time. Can I tell you something about that phrase? In one sense, it's never actually true. But in another sense, it's 100% true. Oh man, somebody get this nut out of the pulpit. What on earth are you talking about, you loony tune? Well, bear with me. This phrase is never actually true. Because at any given moment, time is equally available to spend in whatever way you want. 
Time exists to spend on any number of things. It's not like the clock randomly skipped two hours yesterday and robbed you of the opportunity to spend it. Unless, of course, your wife hit you on the head with a frying pan, you were unconscious for two hours. And if that's the case, we have counselors standing by. Just kidding. Just understand that time is always available to spend as long as we have breath. We do have time. I think what we're saying when we say we don't is that we've ordered the spending of our time based on what we love the most. And that particular request just doesn't fit there. Now, I know that might sting a little bit, but think about it. My time after church today is equally available to any number of activities or possibilities. What's going to determine my use of time is what I love the most. Fair enough? In the sense, or that sense, the phrase, I don't have time, is never true. But I also said that in another sense, it's absolutely true. There's a church father named Augustine of Hippo. Great name, right? He lived around 350 years after Christ. And he noticed something quite wonderful about humans. He noticed that we're worshiping creatures. We'll always be giving ourselves, our time, our passion, our energy, our resources over to something or someone. It's just who we are. We can't help it. Now, the thing that defines what we give ourselves over to worship to is what we love. So for Augustine, the problem for human life was not that we worship what we love. That was just a given. The problem is that what we love has been completely messed up and disordered by sin. You see, there's no such thing as a life that doesn't give its time over to what it loves. There's no such thing as a human life that does not worship. There's only worship in our use of time that's motivated by different loves. So for Augustine, love and worship that's rightly ordered is defined by Jesus in Matthew 22, starting at verse 37. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So hang in with me, we're almost there. Those of us who claim to love God, worship him by giving our time over to him. When we say, I have no time, we're absolutely correct. As followers and lovers of Jesus, our time is given over to him. It's no longer ours to do with as we see fit. So the statement that we have no time is both true and false. We absolutely have all the time given us to offer to that which we love. But as followers of Jesus, our love has been rightly ordered to God, and therefore the time we have belongs entirely to him. We're only stewards. Great, you might say. That's some interesting stuff. But how on earth am I supposed to live that out? Well, before we get there, let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, you have loved us and called us back to yourself. We were made by your hands to love you, to worship you above all things. Even as we take a breath in this morning, we're reminded that our breath is your breath in us. As we've lifted our hands and worship to you, we admit that our body lives and moves by your command. Lord, we declare this morning that you are the source, the reason for every single good thing we have, including our time. Jesus, you came to die because our sin disordered our love from you to ourselves, and that doomed us to death. You came to restore us to that for which we were made, a life given over to you in love and worship. And because you pulled us from death, we can now begin to live that life, that eternal purpose, today and every day, until we're made fully new when you come again. So Holy Spirit, teach us to order our lives according to the new love you have birthed in us. Teach us to worship you by taking what you have given us as a gift, our time, and returning it back to you. Amen. I think it was around three, three, and three years ago-ish now that my brother and sister-in-law purchased a home. It's in the country southwest of Portage La Prairie. Now, it had been their dream for some time to live in the country, maybe have some chickens, a big garden, abundance of space to share with and raise their family. Now, previously, they'd owned a little house in Portage that occasionally allowed you to canoe in the basement. It was small and in a not terribly desirable part of the city, and they were able to sell it, but the price wasn't super high for some of the reasons I've already told you about. So their budget for a little farm was probably laughable for those of you who know realty. Still, they prayed, and sure enough, an opportunity opened for a farmer who wanted to sell the yard that sat on the edge of his farming land. He didn't live there. He didn't want to bother with the home or the buildings on it anymore. So an agreement was made to separate the yard into its own property and sell it to my brother and sister-in-law along with those buildings that were on it. Now, the price he asked for, it was amazing. It was miraculous, quite frankly. It was as though he was charging nothing for the house. Now, the buildings on the yard, they were older, but they still had huge potential. They certainly had value. So anyways, they jumped on the deal, and after some bumps, uh, everything finally went through. Now, I just mentioned that it was though he was charging nothing for the house. It turns out that was a pretty reasonable deal. Let's just say if it were me, I would have been out there with a gas can and a match. The walls, I remember, of the only bathroom were covered in floor linoleum, peeling floor linoleum, including the medicine cabinet. The dungeon, or the basement, was was high enough for my shoulders, but that's about it. Uh, the dungeon ceilings were pretty well insulated uh, with, with mouse nests and poop that rained on my head and into my mouth. Indoor canoeing was also a feature at this house. But what my brother and sister-in-law have in spades that I have none of is vision. The land and the buildings, they were good, even to me. But they saw in the house something I never could have. Now, I brought some pictures today to help you see the transformation. 
So this was the house at the beginning. And there's the basement. Now you can see the reflection here. That's water. That's about five minutes after we had shop vacked it. So it turns out that what the house needed most was a transfer of ownership. And I want to use their journey today to help us picture in our minds what stewardship of time might look like in a life that's had a transfer of ownership, a reordering of worship from ourselves to God. And I want to begin by very briefly looking at this transfer of ownership, this reordering of worship. Pastor Allen has already talked about this, so I'm going to keep this part pretty short. The gospel message is that our lives, like that house, are worthless because of our sin. We've taken our lives, given to us as a good gift, and by denying the ownership of God, we've turned them into a horrifying mess doomed for destruction. Because we've rejected the ownership of God, we've essentially denied our life. Because God's the author of life. We're meant to steward the life he gives, not try and take it for ourselves. But that's exactly what we do. Adam and Eve tried to take life into their own hands when they ate that fruit. And we've been doing the same ever since. The problem is that we're no more... We're no more capable of taking life for ourselves or giving life to ourselves than that house was of maintaining itself. Just like the house, apart from a new owner, a new legitimate owner, there's no hope for our lives. A price had to be paid so that a new owner, a legitimate owner, could take over. And for us, church, that price was the life of Jesus Christ. By rejecting the God of life, we became slaves to sin and death. In taking our death on, Jesus frees us from that slavery. But please hear this. That's only half the story. According to the Apostle Paul, what has happened is for those that believe, a transfer of ownership has happened, not a freedom from ownership. In Romans 6, starting at verse 17, he writes, Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin. There it is. And you have become slaves to righteous living. Remember what Augustine said. We are worshiping creatures made to worship, to give our lives, time, talents, over to something or someone. The only question is who or what we will worship. A freedom from ownership is no more helpful to that house than illegitimate ownership was. The house and our lives are created to belong to an owner, and righteous living is living in obedience to that new owner. It's becoming a good steward of what legitimately now belongs to another. And this is what the whole series is about. Because Jesus has rescued us from our slavery to sin and death, we now belong to him. And our response to that belonging is to live in obedience to him, to worship him by offering him everything we have been given, 
including our time. Now, the danger of any sermon on being a good steward of time is, as followers of Christ is that inevitably people feel like they're being asked to add more to their already packed schedules. It's seen as, as an impossible burden. And they view biblical stewardship of time as, as almost like an addition to an existing house. But what I'm going to suggest to you today is far more radical. I'm going to suggest a complete renovation, a gutting of how we use our time right down to the studs so that God can remake the whole thing from top to bottom. And what's required to gut how we use our time down to the studs is deep humility and certainly the help of the Holy Spirit. Here are some pictures of what it looked like for us to gut this house. Everybody was in there with hammers, saws, muscles, and sweat, and some blood. Now, I said it takes deep humility and the help of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? It takes deep humility because in order to tear down how we've used our time, we first have to admit that we've used our time in disordered and idolatrous ways. We've worshipped ourselves with our time and not our true owner. See, even the very idea that we would envision biblical stewardship of time as an addition rather than a renovation is evidence that our love and worship has been badly disordered. See, when I helped gut this house you're looking at, it was hard work. We tore down walls, knocked out fixtures, and as I mentioned before, we got faithfuls of mouse doo-doo. But everything had to come down in order to expose, clean, and renew. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to ruthlessly tear down some walls of how we spend our time. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you, church. Some of the things you and I spend time on they got to go. We need to do the gut-wrenching work of bringing our time to the Lord in prayer and asking him what he thinks about it. Years ago, one of my kids came to me asking if they could do or buy something. I can't remember specifically, but I do remember that I asked if they had talked with God about it. And the answer was no. And when I asked why, they responded, because I already know what he's going to say. See, this child, they didn't want to bring an issue of stewardship to God because they knew the answer would likely mean a self-denial. Now, this bringing of our time to God is a task we rarely allow ourselves to do because it feels a little like a death, doesn't it? And Jesus made it abundantly clear that to follow him means putting our old ways to death. But... That death is an anticipation of new life. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for this life, for life in this world, will keep it for eternity. So tearing down these infested and warped walls of idolatry means that new is coming. We don't die to ourselves for nothing. We die to ourselves so that we might live to God for all eternity. Amen? 
Now, it'd be a pretty horrible renovation if we ended it at allowing the Holy Spirit to tear down our idolatrous ways of stewarding our time and then just left it there. What needed to happen next in the house and what needs to happen in our life is that we need the task of rebuilding a properly ordered stewardship of time. And Paul writes something particularly interesting about the use of time in the book of Ephesians. So if at home you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're starting to read at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, what is it that Paul is trying to tell us here? What does he mean by saying that the days are evil? I think he probably has a couple things in mind. Our days belong to our earthly existence, right? That our earthly existence remains under the dominion of sin and death. Now, Satan has been chained by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but he still remains active in the world. He hasn't been cast out yet. And because of this, Paul knows that believers are continually under this great pressure to misuse our time and our opportunity. You see, the enemy's a liar. You know that. I know that. And he roams around trying to destroy the plan of God in and through us by distracting our time with things that do nothing to glorify God or expand his kingdom. I remember years ago, sitting in a coffee shop, overhearing a conversation of a mom. And she was describing the busyness of her life, particularly as it related to sports. Now, I'm not undercutting sports. But the way she spoke was as though she was literally a slave to this way of spending her time. I mean, as she described her schedule, it was ridiculous. I don't even think she had time to eat. And it was as if she felt she had no choice. And I think that's precisely what Paul means when he says the days are evil. And it's why we need that gutting down to the studs that we spoke of earlier. The enemy wants to enslave our time to things, sometimes, church, even good things, that derail our mission as believers. But then Paul goes on to say that in order to be wise with our time, we need to understand the will of God. And we might be tempted to get frustrated with Paul here. What is the will of God? How do I figure that out? And context is really important because Paul's actually already told us what the will of God is. So again, if you're at Ephesians 5, I want you to turn back to the very beginning of that chapter, verse 1. Paul says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So there it is. Our rightly ordered love plays out in our imitation of Christ. This is the will of God, church. When we think of Christ, 
We certainly understand him as God in the flesh, as Savior, as Lord, as King. But the author of Hebrews describes him as the second Adam. What's he trying to get at in describing Jesus this way? Maybe think of it like this. If Adam was the father of the wrong way to be human, then Jesus is the author of the right way to be human. His life, because it's a perfect reflection of the Father, is also the perfect example of what it means to be human. What it's always meant to be human. That means to start rebuilding a biblical stewardship of our time, we are given the glorious example of Christ. What does Jesus do with his time? How does he spend it? And the Gospel of John describes the life of Jesus in a pretty interesting way and very challenging Listen to his words in terms of how he lives. I do only what the Father does. I speak only what the Father tells me. That word only, it appears all over the gospel when Jesus is talking about his mission, what he does. And it's loaded with significance. As the perfect human being, Jesus demonstrates that perfection in his complete submission to his Father. And this is true of everything he says and does, not the least of which is the use of his time. Now, also found throughout the Gospel of John is the phrase, my time has not yet come, or it's not yet my time. And it comes up when Jesus is being asked, usually to perform some sort of miracle or demonstration of power. I think we'd all agree that miracles, demonstrations of divine power, they're good uses of time. But even they are submitted to the time that is determined by the Father. So what I'm suggesting here is that as we begin to rebuild a biblical stewardship of our time, I'm suggesting we follow Christ and do nothing except what the Father tells us. And I think that works itself out in two ways. It means following what the Father has already said in his word. Specifically through Jesus' life on earth. And it also means seeking to walk in step with the Spirit who will only lead us, there's that word again, according to the Father. Any other way of ordering our lives and our time is incapable of making the best use of it. Because we're not God. And we don't have his understanding. So let's start with what the Father has already said in his word. Let's go back to our house renovation analogy. The first question we need to ask is a foundation question. What is the purpose of the time given to us? And when we ask this question, we're really asking the biggest question of life. What are we here for? Now, we could dig into hundreds, if not thousands, of verses. But let's use, I think, what is probably the best summary of what those verses say. It's found in the opening verses of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is what it says. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This church, this, this is the reason for our existence. This is the purpose of our time. You and I exist to glorify God and enjoy him. Now, here's a picture of the new foundation that needed to be built. 
The old foundation was built of poorly laid cinder blocks right just on the dirt. And it was literally collapsing under the house. But this new foundation, it was beyond solid. It was built of these almost huge styrofoam Lego blocks on concrete pilings. And they were locked together. Then they were tied in with rebar. And then they were filled with concrete. I mean, the house that's going to eventually, or that did eventually move on to this foundation, is not going to collapse. And so it is with our foundation in the Christian life. Our use of time must be built up from and rest on the fact that we exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I brought glory to you, the Father, here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So when we forget this foundation, everything else starts shifting and collapsing. It's not stable. But what rests on that foundation are these external load-bearing walls. And they define, they hold up, they encompass the rest of the building. So what are we looking for then? We are looking for the ways that we spend our time that are permanent, immovable, indispensable. And I don't want you to hear this morning that these things are necessarily the things that take up the greatest quantity of time in our day. But these are the uses of time that must absolutely be present in the lives of any believer. There is no home without these walls. They're non-negotiable for us. Again in John, Jesus defines what I think those external walls are. Yes, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. I think these are our external load-bearing walls. We of first importance give our time to two things. First, we remain or abide in Christ. That just means we stay connected to him. We know him and are known by him. And this happens quite simply through prayer and scripture. And Jesus even demonstrates this regularly when he would get away to a quiet place in order that he could be with his father. I mean, think about that for a second. The son of God, the second person of the Trinity... He needs to stay to his, connected to his Father in prayer. So how much more so do we need it? The second, to be connected to Jesus means that we participate in his mission. We do what he does. We bear fruit in the same way Jesus did, by serving and giving his life so that the world would know the love of God. In John 13, Jesus he washes the disciples' feet. And then he tells them that he did it as an example of what they were supposed to do. In Luke 22, Jesus declares that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, Jesus used his time on earth to serve. And, and if we're going to imitate him with our time, we also use our time to serve. In a few weeks, Pastor Chris will walk you through more of what that looks like. Look, I'm not going to stand here and give you specific times you need to spend in abiding or being with God 
and serving alongside God in his mission. And that's for you to ask the Holy Spirit. But here's what I am saying. If they aren't part of how you spend your time, then your house is going to collapse. And it will not offer the world any truly good thing. And I think we want our lives to offer the world a truly good thing, don't we? Here's a picture of the external walls of the garage when they were first going up. Now, what I want you to notice in the picture is that these walls are anchored to the inside. They're also anchored to the outside. Now, that anchoring needs to happen because the external walls can tumble and fall until the next stage of building happens. There's something that happens next in the building process that, that pins those walls, that helps keep them upright and solidly in place. And here's what it is. It's the roof. The roof gets built. Now, as important as those external walls are, they are easily knocked down until they have that roof that protects them and locks them in place. So what's the roof of our stewardship of time? I want to suggest to you this morning that what helps the believer to keep those walls of remaining in Christ and serving in his mission upright, locked in, and protected is Christian community. We need that place We need that people where we're held together with and by one another. We need that place and people that hold our external walls in place against those winds of temptation that constantly press against us. We need each other. Of all the ways, all the ways God could have devised to rescue humanity, he chooses the development of a community, the initializing of the church. So what does that mean for us? It means that our external walls of participating in the mission of Jesus can't even happen apart from the community of the church. The church that Jesus initiated. Stewarding our time to allow for loving and self-sacrificing togetherness communicates the nature of God and the gospel to a watching world. Of all that Jesus said and did, of all that he could have done, it's clear that he gives an enormous amount of his time to community, this community that he's forming, starting with his disciples. See, Cross Church, you need these people, and they need you. And even more, the world needs you to participate in this community for the sake of the gospel. Now, this was an interesting day. The floor of this old house was nothing more than kind of deck boards that spanned over 20 feet, and they were held up by a two-by-six beam, which was supported by a wooden post right here that was stuck literally just sitting in sand and dirt. And it had completely rotted away, so it wasn't even sitting in sand and dirt. I could have touched that, and it would have started to swing. The floor hovered above this empty pit that used to be a pool, so walking on it felt a little like it had the structural stability of cooked spaghetti. It was useless. It had to be ripped out completely. And once the house got moved onto the new foundation, a new and proper floor was installed. 
Now, interior walls are necessary in a house. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. But they first need something solid to rest on, don't they? And that's the floor. So you can probably guess the next question I'm going to ask. What's the floor in our stewardship of time? It's rest. It's Sabbath. The creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 show that God rested on the seventh day and that day became an example that you and I were supposed to follow. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he reframes the whole idea of Sabbath by teaching that it's ultimately meant for us, not for God. The Pharisees had twisted it. In other words, God doesn't need to rest. He did it as an example for us to follow because we need to rest. But why? Why do we need to rest? There may be some of you in this congregation that think you don't. Well, I think we need to rest certainly because our body and our minds get tired, but what if there's more to it? What if Sabbath is actually a rebellion against idolatry? See, Sabbath is a direct confrontation with the sinful and idolatrous idea that we're God. When we take time for Sabbath, we acknowledge that the world goes on, that life continues, that the cosmos remain held together because there's a God who holds them together in his hands and that God is not us. Sabbath is for us because it reminds us that we are the creature, not the creator. And when we remember that, we find true rest. So now we get to those interior walls. And you might add a couple here or there, maybe more than I do, but I like a modern open concept. I don't want to get too boxed in. I want to suggest two interior walls. But before going there, I want to help you understand why I define these next two as interior walls in our stewardship of time. You see, interior walls, are, they're necessary to define the home into useful and productive areas. But that said, they're not exterior walls. They don't and cannot bear the weight of the home. They can be moved when and as necessary as the Spirit leads. Spiritually, these interior walls can shift depending on the season and at the moment-by-moment leading of the Holy Spirit. But still, I define them as necessary walls because they're part of our creational mandate. And the first one's work. Genesis 2, verse 15 reads, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now many of us, sometimes myself included, have come to view work as a necessary but meaningless consumer of time. Some may even go so far as to believe that work is somehow evil, a thief of joy. But the creation story tells us something quite different. It tells us that we were made to work and that work brings glory to God. You remember our foundation? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Work wasn't the result of the fall. It existed as good from the beginning. You see, the difficulty of work came with the fall. The frustration and the temptations of work, those came with the fall, but not work itself. 
And one of those temptations was to treat work as an external load-bearing wall. And that's precisely why we need that Sabbath floor as rest to properly anchor our work to. All that said, we are made to work and it brings glory to God. In Colossians 3, starting at verse 23, Paul writes, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So a second interior wall, I think, is family, and by that I mean earthly family. Besides work, another creational mandate given to the first man and woman was to be fruitful and multiply. The whole of the Old Testament testifies to the earthly family as a means through which God redeems the world. The family of Abraham is given the law of God, and they pass it down from generation to generation in order that they might declare God to the surrounding nations. The family's purposeful. Now, they fail miserably most of the time. But that doesn't disqualify giving our time to our earthly families as a means of declaring God to the world in our love for them. But a similar temptation can occur with this interior wall too. We can begin to believe or be tempted to believe that it's an exterior wall. Now this might offend some of you, but dedication to our earthly family has the potential to become idolatrous, to become the thing we live for rather than God. Jesus himself acknowledged the proper place earthly family holds. When in Matthew 12, it's an uncomfortable scripture, the disciples tell Jesus that his earthly family is waiting for him at the door. And his response is, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples He says, look, these are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. For Jesus, the family of God is his first family. And so it ought to be with us. Now work and earthly family, they're necessary recipients of our stewardship of time. But both need to be subjected to the penetrating light of the Spirit so that he can shift and move them when, how, and as he sees fit. Now we're going to wrap this renovation journey up by talking about the things that make a house a home, the furnishings. What are the things that bring fun, relaxation, entertainment, and excitement to our day? Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's some quiet time on a walk. Perhaps it's a good TV series. Maybe it's engaging in sports. I want you to hear this, church. Furnishings, they're not bad things. They're not inherently bad uses of your time. God delights to see his children give time to things that bring them joy. He's a good father. That said, they like those interior walls. They have the ability to become idols, don't they? To become the thing that we live for. And they too need to be movable even more movable than work and family. In chapter 4, James writes, look here, 
you who say today or tomorrow, we're in a certain town, we'll stay there for a year, we'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. And so we arrive back at Jesus, doing only what the Father wants. I think the life of Jesus, as revealed in Scripture, gives us a pretty good template for what a renovation in stewarding our time looks like. We build it on the foundation that our time exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We erect those outer walls by giving our time to being with Him and participating in His serving and saving mission. We secure and protect those outer walls by giving time to the community of faith. We rebel against idolatry by building a secure floor which we then build our movable interior walls of work and family finally ending at the fully mobile furnishings. So here's what the end of the house renovation looked like. Beautiful, I think. In the house of biblically stewarded time, it's going to be beautiful too. It's not going to result in burnout, regret, or wasted time. See, the template we've learned about will bear good fruit. Still, at the end of the day, all our stewardship of time, including the template we've talked about, is supposed to be continually offered to the Lord for his ongoing direction and guidance. So when Jesus left the world for heaven, he told his disciples that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And Paul reminds us to walk and step with the Spirit. That's a moment-by-moment thing, folks. Abiding with God through his Spirit is what will allow us to properly frame everything else in the home. So if you've heard anything this morning, I want you to hear this. If you want to steward your time well, start and finish with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that the God of all eternity, the God who exists outside of time and space, would come and make himself, yourself, known in our time and space in order to rescue us from our idolatrous way of living that is leading to death. And you would show us the way to life. You would make possible the way to life through your death and your resurrection. And because of it, Lord, we belong to you. We declare it this morning, we are yours. And because we are yours, our time is yours. Lord, we repent, we ask for your forgiveness for the dozens, if not hundreds, of idolatrous ways we serve ourselves with time. Lord, we have all the time you have given us as long as we have breath. 
but it's not our time, it's yours. You purchased it. Help us to live in your light. Help us to keep in step with your spirit. Help us to build a life that honors and glorifies you and enjoys you forever. Help us to do that with our time. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Church, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I encourage you to uh, tune in these next number of weeks as more uh, people will come up here talking about stewardship. Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, church. And, And you need to be here. You need to be part of this, as we've already talked about. So thanks. Have a wonderful week. And I'll see you again next week.